Hi, and welcome to Zero Ambitions podcast, a show that talks about sustainability, the built environment, and our zero carbon goals. Focused on what can be done to meet the collective challenges that lie ahead, this is a podcast to share good practice, advice, and stories about the importance of sustainable building and our obsession with retrofit. The podcast will bring you interviews with organisations and institutions that play key roles in the move to net zero homes and the stories of people who are living in them. Your hosts are me, Duncan Smith of the AECB, Dan and Alex from Everything is User Experience, a consultancy for low energy building sector who provide business strategy, website user experience and communication support, Jeff from Passive House Plus magazine, and Sarah Edmonds, architect and activist who is the steering group coordinator at ACAN and director for Studio Search, a consultancy that advocates for systemic change around low carbon domestic retrofit. In this second of a two-part interview with Peter Rickaby, we discuss how we have to upgrade the UK's historic housing stock and the difficulty we face through our hard-to-treat properties. We'll cover heat pumps and the additional energy we'll need to electrify heating, as well as low-carbon heat networks and where and where it could and should be used. And procurement. Are the contracts here that we need to deliver retrofit at scale? And what do we need from our procurement managers to do so? I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. But I, what, one of the things I wanted to say in this discussion is that I'm totally committed to that stuff. But actually, work I've been doing recently, some of it I've been writing f- about for Jeff recently too, um, shows it's absolutely fantastically difficult to get our 27 million dwellings and make them into zero carbon dwellings. That is, every time I go, I've been going around cities recently, visiting housing areas, mostly in inner cities, looking at all sorts of different types of housing and mixed use and thinking, hmm, how will we do that? How will we do that? And looking at them. It's incredibly challenging. And there are standard solutions, you know, the EWI and the IWI and the heat pumps and the solar PV, which we generally apply in easier circumstances. When you get to these more difficult cases, they don't work. And I'll give you an example. If you have, I was in a city central estate in the northeast of England and uh, about a month ago. And we were looking at EWI on 1900s, 1920s terrace houses, beautiful houses with bay windows and things. And we were cataloged, since I was there with colleagues, I've been cataloging all the things that stop you doing EWI. You know, it's like it's listed. It's in a conservation area. There's an Article 4 direction. Uh, it's got too much architecture on the front. It's got alleyways and passages, the front elevations on the back of the pavement, and so on and so on. We've got about 30 of these triggers. And so for every every building that's got something like that, got to find a workaround, an alternative approach or whatever. And we've been reduced at some point to saying, well, what if we just put some solar PV on the roof and a Tesla battery in the building somewhere? Would that work? At the moment, we're trying to see whether we can make the numbers add up. You know, how many walls could you not insulate with as much roof as you've got to actually compensate for the lack of insulation? And it's very, very difficult. And mostly the yeah. people doing the analysis come back and say, it's not going to work. So that for me is quite depressing. You know, yeah. because I I haven't got at my fingertips a solution for quite a lot of the of the stock. Yeah. Is that where, Peter, we need to probably be more pragmatic? Well, we obviously do need to be more pragmatic, but is that where we look at, um, and this is a, an issue in Glasgow, we 
interviewed um, the guys at, at Glasgow University and, and John Gilbert on Nidri Road, which was a fantastic project. But but it was quite expensive. And of course, if you're doing that at scale, you could reduce costs. But again, it's very disruptive. And I wonder whether there is, maybe within our sustainable building group, there is acceptance that district heating will have to play a role. Yes. Well, I've, I've in, particularly in that northeastern city that I was just referring to, I think we came to the conclusion that we can't, there's too much architecture. So we can't do EWI. You don't want serried ranks of air source heat pumps on the front. That's impossible. And you certainly can't put them on the back because the back is a total mess. A hundred years of aggregation and extensions and things. Um, so uh, the result is that um, you have to start to think of others. Um, obviously, one route to go is IWI, but that involves a whole load of interaction with kitchens and bathrooms and the investment plan for the landlord and are you going to do the bathrooms or did you just do them last year and all that stuff. And then the other thing we've been looking at, and I think has probably deserves a lot more attention than we've given it so far, is communal ground source heat pumps at the street level. And just what uh, David Adams and Melius did in Nottingham, where you know they went around and found every little corner of grass on, on the road verges and every bit of playground and a little bit of car park here and found all the places they could drop boreholes down and then connected them to a sort of porter cabin based energy centre, which then served the houses. And I think those kind of solutions have got lots going for them. And ironically, exactly where traffic engineers have been in and traffic calmed the whole area so there's right. loads of leftover space that was used to be full of cars and now isn't and i think there's the scope there but the problem with ground source heat pumps to serve say a terrace of 20 or 50 or 80 houses is that it's serious engineering it's not something you could just call off a spec you've got to design the thing with proper consultants and so yeah. on and it's serious investment too yeah. so yeah. and and it smacks a bit of communism you know, sharing the heating. <laughs> well, well, only in England. You know, yes, previous yeah. notes about what we talked about. But it's, the other bit about it is that I can appreciate that sort of like, you know, what are we going to do with the tricky ones? And there's actually a team of people in ACAN looking at what we've been calling conservation area, well, CPR, which is a snappy title, but conservation area planning reform guidance, like to, to look at areas like that. So the, I know, and there's lots of other groups like sort of looking at that too. And of course, yourself being very, very experienced in it. But then with the Letty retrofit guide, for example, the modelling, the stock modelling done in that shows that actually, yeah, there are those problematic areas. But there are vast waves of, of, of properties that are kind of available and ready now that can take some of those ones. And whilst we're delivering and trying to deliver for those and then being creative with engagement with communities around the ones that can't have, you know, yeah. the EWI and those other bits, who knows quite where we'll be in 10 years time with the creative thinking and approaches to things. And I sort of feel it's a double-edged sword. Like on the one hand, it's like, oh, it's so hard. Like, what do we do? I'm looking out here at like George in front of Bay Houses in one area, but then, you know, different mansion blocks in the other. And it's a real mix. But on the other hand, I sort of feel like, well, there's all sorts of creative stuff coming out, you know, and who knows where we will get to. So it's sort of like a happy, sad <laughs> mix. Yes, yes. <laughs> Well, I, I, I could tell you a story about a, a little bit of stock in central London that belongs to a famous English public school in the Midlands. I won't name it. Um, <laughs> and they've got this as little, a, few, a couple of blocks of property in central London near the children's hospital. And um, that property funds the school uh, and has done since about 1450 or something. So it's quite important to them. And they said, 
to us, well, we need to retrofit this. We need to get it to zero carbon. I went and had a look, and it's like shops with offices above, offices with flats above, some houses, lots and lots of other flats, restaurants, takeaways, and they're all in two or three streets. And I looked at it, and I thought, this is a total nightmare. There's probably about 200 tenures in there. And so I went back and I said, well, I think that's going to be really difficult. How much money have you got? And they said, let's offset it, see, which I'm not generally a, a fa in favor of. So, but well, I have some colleagues who are um, what they call sustainable economists. And so they went away to work out for me how much forest you would need to plant to offset these two or three blocks. And they came back, and it t depends a lot on what kind of forest or what kind of trees. and thing. But it basically came back at 80 hectares of forest to do two blocks in central London. And wow. so you multiply that up by how many urban blocks we've got in the UK uh, and multiply that by 80 hectares, and you end up foresting quite a lot of Europe in order to, <laughs> in order to offset. So it, what it taught me is that offsetting does not work. Well, you George Bombio would be delighted. He's all up for this rewilding, isn't he? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just I just remember, Peter, is this weird? And I, I could definitely be accused in the, in the past of, of being a, a of being focused more on on, on fabric upgrades than, than renewables. But I, I think in our industry we have certain camps. You have um, you know, sustainable building, fabric approach, um, passive house guys, you have renewables guys, and, and you have district heating. But uh, is this where I wonder there is a compromise between those three kind of roughly different parties where what, what I think we don't want to happen is we go down the hydrogen route. So it's all too difficult. Yeah. How do we how do we just provide? Well, uh, but it doesn't work, does it? Because it using work. hydrogen for domestic heating is maybe 62% efficient. Why not just send the electricity you're using to make the hydrogen straight to the house and use it at a heat pump at 240% efficient? So that I don't think there's any case at all for domestic heating with hydrogen. Though I think there are places you can use it, big industry, big vehicles, and maybe some storage. I'm, a, I'm kind of exercised at the moment about our obsession with heat pumps. And I know some of you guys are interested in that. But actually, when I look at, okay, probably the route to zero carbon is zero carbon electricity off from offshore wind, et cetera, fed to heat pumps. That sort of all makes sense to me, but not right now, because actually we don't have enough offshore wind to satisfy. We'd need to do, to, to electrify all our heat in the UK, we'd need 30 times as much offshore wind as we've currently got. Yeah. Do it with heat pumps at two and a half coefficient of power. You still need 12 times as much. So, and then once you've made the electricity, uh, well, the, the, the UK heat and building strategy says we'll have four times as much wind. Well, that implies you've got to reduce the demand by 60% from 12 times as much wind to four times. So that means retrofit, yeah. uh, retrofit of everything. Um, but that that's all very well. But we also don't have the the local infrastructure in the distribution system between the, 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 power, the uh, substation and the house. And we're also trying to electrify our cars. Uh -huh. So I've come to the view that actually forget about heat pumps for one boiler generation, 15 years. Just live with the boilers and do the building fabric. Get it insulated and airtight. Reduce the demand. Let people convert their cars. Let somebody invest in more wind power and more distribution. Mm -hmm. And then we can start plugging the heat pumps in at scale. 
But yeah. if we try and do it all at once, we're going to fall flat on our faces. Uh, absolutely. And the bit that will be destroyed most is public trust, which is really, yes. really problematic. Yes. And yes. if we yeah. can start the power that doing fabric first measures has to influence a mindset shift is really, really big. And the more that we can do in raising the profile of that and 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 myth busting around what it means and converting people's you know, opinions around it, the better, because you can do that sort of stuff. There's there's tangible things that's like related to building construction as we know it. There are ways of like doing a just transition in terms of the jobs that are needed and might not be as relevant, but with some upskilling, like there's a loads and loads around that. But the problem is, is that it's like granular and it's small and it's slow. Nope, doesn't look like you're doing anything. It's not the silver bullet, shiny thing. And But actually, it's the bit that we come back around to again and again and again, demand reduction, demand reduction. That's what yeah, you've got to do. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I just wanted to. It's, it's really, uh, it's really good. It's interesting that Peter highlighted the both the, the supply of electricity as as well as the network infrastructure. And often policymakers and, and the general public are um, uh, perhaps aren't as well informed as they should be. Because I think Peter and I have discussed the the the, the, the amount of energy required to decarbonise heat through electrification that's significant. I think 12, 12 times based on a two point five percent coefficient of performance. But one of the most underlooked things is the the physical hopper, the bits in the ground that take electricity from um, from from the place of production to the to the door, and a really interesting fact, without going on about this too much, an interesting fact: Scottish Power stated in a meeting last year that I was at that a ten percent reduction in Scotland, Peter. So if you take the two million gas boilers in Scotland to transition two hundred thousand of those boilers, ten percent of those boilers to to low carbon heat, effectively through heat pumps, would require a a fifty percent upgrade of the network. A fifty percent upgrade. Okay, there's a diminishing return after that, but that gives you a scale of the of the issue. Yes, and there's no sign of the investment in the local networks that we need at the moment. Uh, and also, what I think people took because I used to work for Scottish Power is the consumer pays for that network upgrade. That's something that people don't don't get. The, the network upgrades aren't done at the at the good of of the company. They have to be agreed and signed off by Ofgem. Uh, in, in terms of, and it has to be identified. So that I don't see the strategic planning from a policy or, or in the ground perspective of the electrification of either um, heat or vehicles, but I'm, I'm hoping I'm wrong. Well, I, I, think, I think the industry thinks we're all going to pay for it. If you're a housing association or a local authority and you've got a, whole, a big estate and you want to electrify it, the industry, the industry is going to say, right, well, we need this much from you to strengthen yeah. the network. Yeah. And if you say, I want to put charging points for EVs in all my houses, they're going to say, OK, we've got more money for strengthening the network. We end up paying for it, without a doubt. It's not going to come from some magic pot. I just wanted to know, how has is, how is Scotland coped with, uh, with the, the massive uh, growth of renewables into the grid? Is it just because it's part of a common... Uh, grid system with the, uh, you know, so it's, uh, or there, so, so there's a, there's, a, I think it's, a, it's certainly near enough 100% in terms of renewables. Uh, it was 97% last year. I think the grid doesn't work in a, in the, in the 
from my understanding, and this is, um, I'm sure, happy for somebody to correct me, a significant proportion is because the way the grid works is not just Scottish. So there's there's interconnectivity, especially between the Whiteley's wind farm, which is, I think, one of the largest wind farms in Europe, which is literally five or six miles east of me. Um, I think the majority of that in some days can go to Merseyside. So there's, there's the, so even though we produce a significant amount of electricity, it's not it's not that all Scottish consumers consume that. As the grid doesn't work in a, in a geographical way in, in, in how we yeah. perceive uh, borders. So that's a long way round for me saying I don't know, Jeff. What, what do you expect <laughs> from the English, Duncan? You know, <laughs> they're going to steal your power like they stole everything else. <laughs> well, we're still yeah. trying to open up more gas fields, aren't we? It's like the Irish with whiskey, Peter, you know? <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, no. we can make some pretty good stuff just <laughs> we're learning from uh, you we're learning <laughs> yeah i i wonder about see this is getting back to the this this should be a social provision but like, there should be a national nationally developed solution for all these things i think district heating is the is a, an amazing idea like hearing the tales from the danes and the the scandies like it sounds magnificent, but you apply it to uh, a sort of Anglo or Western trad Western model, like like Jeff recently experienced where he lives. Fuel prices go up. All of a sudden, you're stuck with a single supplier, and there is like it is uh, district heating is not compatible as a concept with competition. Like it just isn't. So going back to your point about like geothermal boreholes in neighbourhoods. This is something Duncan and I have been talking about quite a lot. Like, ah, huh. so could you generate electricity? Could you get communities to invest in their own electricity or energy generation, heat or electricity, like photovoltaics or thermal? And could you then use that to reduce the 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 demand or the cost for them, which then can be invested in fabric infrastructure? which then reduce demand, which then means that you're using less of the electricity or heat that you're generating, which can then be fed back into the grid or whatever. And then under the current system, you get paid. But uh, in another system, another solar uh, catastrophe that occurred thanks to another government rollback of a plan that was working or appeared to be working. I don't know the economics of it entirely. Uh, but this is this is the only way I can see things working. Like, canny people are going to invest soon, and they'll be quids in in thirty years' time. A bit like Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I have an interesting story about district heating because not long ago I worked on a um, a quite well-known project at Thamesmead for Peabody, Thamesmead in southeast London, and um, the place was riddled with damp and mold, and we. The work we did was all about solving the damp and mold problem and removing it. But the the backstory is quite interesting because Thamesmead was built by the GLA in the 70s and it had a district heating system, which worked really well. It kept people warm. And in fact, it was so over-engineered that people had used to have their windows open to cool the dwellings off while the heating was on. So it was a classic example of that sort of badly designed heating system. But then the the, uh, the the estate was large-scale voluntary transferred to a housing association, not Peabody, but its pre predecessor, 
who didn't have the money to replace the district heating system for two and a half thousand dwellings when it wore out. So in about 1999, they put boilers, combi boilers, in every single one of those two and a half thousand dwellings. My God. So yeah. People will now be responsible for their own fuel bills. And of course, what happened in 2001, 2002? Huge skyrocketing of fuel prices. And suddenly, everybody was fuel poor, everybody was underheating, the windows were closed, and the mould grew. And the, the problem I inherited in about mid-2015, something like that, was 15 years of mould that had come from that decision. If they had replaced that district heating system with a properly engineered communal system, it wouldn't have happened. So there is a backstory that actually there's some there's some merit in doing you know, well-engineered community bought into uh, district heating. It's, but it has to be well-engineered, and that's the bit that was always missing in the UK. Well, this and is, this is, is think... properly regulated as well. This is what what, yeah. what Dan was getting at. You know, we, we are seeing our prices have come down a little bit recently, um, yeah. but but they did jump from uh, for for, for the, a communal heating system in my apartment building uh, from uh, about nine cents per kilowatt hour to twenty eight point eight cent um, overnight. You know, mm. um, it's down to twenty three now or so. Um, and they're low energy apartments, so so it's just hot water that that's the issue. But uh, for, for us at least, but for some of the I, some of the um, the tenants on the WhatsApp group we're talking about are showing uh, their daily from their apps that their daily energy usage of heating usage of fifteen to twenty euro, you know, wow. uh, which is astonishing for a, a brand new A two rated uh, apartment that is performing well in space heating terms. I would say, you know. So taking that particular example aside, because because that's a more modern building, and and, and you know taking what what Dan says is about how you create something that is transparent and and you know that has the interests of society at, at, at heart in terms of providing an equitable price for consumers. But the, the, going back to the point is that is there an acceptance within us as sustainable building people that that we have to provide a level of heat which is higher than perhaps we thought five, six years ago for some types of buildings. And again, example in Glasgow is tenements. Do we, we accept we cannot fit tenements because of their historic, um, the historic nature of the materials of construction and also the fact they're very popular and they're tenanted. Do we accept the fact that we do some level of reduction demand that is palatable enough to then provide a higher heat through district heating, which is either commonly owned, community owned, or overseen by a public entity, or as Dan and I would, would prefer, a not-for-profit entity like an ESCO. Um, I don't mm. know, it's just a question. Well, it seems to me that there is a whole tranche of stock. Tenements in Glasgow is a good one. A lot of listed buildings and in conservation areas and things where you can't reduce the demand. And sometimes just for technical reasons, not necessarily for aesthetic reasons, you know, you, you don't want to put IWI on a building thicker than about 60 mil and so on. So you've got a whole load of people who happen through their good or bad luck to be in those houses. And then immediately an inequality thing seems to me to arise that we're doing work and it's often publicly subsidized for people in easier buildings and they get their fuel bills reduced. But these people, because of where they are, don't get as much. And so I think we need some kind of tariff reform that will help the people who by chance have ended up in buildings which are hard to insulate. And I don't see that on the horizon, but it's going to be necessary because a lot of the people in, for instance, buildings in conservation areas, 
and a lot of the people in Glasgow tenants are low-income households, and they're not in a position to subsidise the fact that we want to keep the architecture special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, the issue the issue is less of an issue in Scotland where I think there is a there is a policy, or policymakers are uh, more receptive to. Um, state-sponsored or, or, or commonly-based schemes, whereas we can see quite clearly the nature of travel in, in bays is, is very much the individual, the, the market and the individual contract to deliver something. So, you know, maybe that's where we have to look at a, a, you know, an alternative approach, you know, market consumer-led informed uh, advice in England and perhaps more state-sponsored entities in Scotland. Sorry, just talking, you know, talking out loud. I think there's some opportunity as well to do things at landlord level. You know, you've got a housing organisation with a lot of stocks spread out. Why can't they subsidise the hard-to-hit treats and the hard-to-hits from the other ones by adjusting the rents and things? Now, that's subject yeah. to the regulator, but there's clearly an opportunity there to do some equalising that way. It's the same with PV on the roof. You know, some people get it because their roof is facing the right way and some people don't. Or some people are on the top floor and some people are not. They're on the lower floor. And so you have to do some equalising with that too. So we need some mechanisms that start to share the pain, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I, w- I was talking to some landlords the other week at the CIH conference in Scotland. And what really struck me was in terms of they acknowledged the spectre on the horizon about of the need to become more energy efficient, either to meet a, a certainly not especially rigorous EPC rating, but just the general need from their tenants, because it's about protecting the fabric of their building as much as anything else, as you, you pointed out. Well, they wanted the state to pay for it. <laughs> and this is professional landlords. This isn't just someone with a buy to let. And they they were expecting that they they should receive some money from government to help them do this. Well, it was, I, I can, it was I can understand that. I can understand that, though, Dan, because certainly social landlords in the UK have been so starved of resources that, yeah. that and that they've been told for instance by the regulator that they can't borrow on the market to retrofit they can only borrow for new build because that's the government's priority yeah. so they've got to meet their retrofit investments from their revenue and and they're in an impossible position they're nothing like well enough resourced and i quite favor the idea of moving the subsidies from central government distribution to local authorities and housing organisations and letting them decide how to distribute the money. That would seem to me to be more localised, more about levelling up and, and more equitable. Yeah. And I mean, more this, key this... to understanding what their housing stock is, because you can't roll out stuff centrally if you don't have a better knowledge of what your housing stock is and to understand the fact that these solutions that come out Unless you understand what your stock is, how it's performing, how old it is, what measures you can put in place, what sort of things might work, how the orientation affects them, all those bits that you do need a closer lens look at, then you can't really just go, here's the here's the solution from on high, apply it as you will. Because you'll get what you said as well before about you'll get this inequality because it's a, the inequality on so many levels that actually you need a closer relationship with your subject. You know, you need to have that and we'll we'll need to, to really accelerate that, you know, decentralization of the decision making. I see we have a little guest joining us there, Duncan. <laughs> she's she's always on cue, yes, get a little bit of No, I, I no, I 
I don't I don't disagree. One of the one of the questions, just to slightly change 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 the subject, because I know we're all a bit pressed for time, is Peter's been involved in the LAD schemes and I think you're right. What what you were alluding to earlier on was um you've always been a big advocate of pausing and reflecting and understanding your stock. And I think definitely at a local level, that's much more achievable than the central. And I just wondered how the, what the LAD schemes, because I know Peter's worked on, have they picked up? Is, what are the lessons we can learn from, from, from them? I think we're learning, but I think we haven't learned yet. Um, I've not just been working on LADs, which is when I was working with the Redford Academy. I've done quite a lot on social housing decarbonisation fund with um, Savills recently in the last few months. And there are quite a few different lessons. Um, one is that it's, there's quite a big mismatch between programmes that arrive from outer space and land and say, do all this stuff, and what those organisations have been doing anyway with their investment patterns. And certainly my Savills colleagues have spent a long time um, doing analyses of housing stocks, looking at what needs to be done, making in, uh, asset management and investment plans and you know, including everything from kitchens and bathrooms and so on. So we come along with lads money and we say, right, we want to do lots of insulation now. And the first thing you discover is that sometimes <laughs> that plan doesn't fit with the, the organization's own plan. So for instance, we've just been looking recently for a London borough at lots of internal wall insulation in their stock because they happen to have got some HHDF money and they need to spend it by the end of March next year, which is pretty challenging. Um, but the question I asked was, well, what about your kitchens and bathrooms? Because you're not going to be able to do IWI on houses that have got, that you're not going to do the kitchens and bathrooms. And it turns out that quite a lot of them, they don't know what the state the kitchen and the bathroom is. Quite a lot they know that it was it's relatively new and was done under decent homes. And quite a lot they know that they will have to. So I'm saying this program from LADS or SHDF doesn't fit very well because these guys, for every dwelling, uh, these guys have got um, a plan that says the kitchen will be replaced this year, the bathroom this year, the roof that year, the windows this year. And I come along with my IWI or my EWI and it, it doesn't match. Yeah? So and the fact that the, the programmes like LADS and SHDF have to be spent in a certain timescale, which is the Treasury's dictate, also gets in the way. So I've been saying to Bayes, you know, we really need to be a bit more relaxed about this. We need, So long as we know they're going to get there, it may be that they need to take 30 years because they've just done the kitchens and bathrooms. You can't do the floor insulation. Well, the, with the possible exception of using the Qbot robot, you can't do the floor insulation unless it's you either decant them, which is very expensive, or it's a void. So, what we need to do is to build the floor insulation into the void packages. Yeah, uh, it's all that kind of stuff, which is just not there at the moment. The packages it's almost like you need whole building plans or whole exactly. system plans. What's the yes. what? Is that yes. over here? <laughs> yeah. Well, David Weatherall was very good at Redfordshire's task group yesterday because he made the point that why are we trying to retrofit dwellings? We should be retrofitting buildings. And if you've got a building with 30 flats in it, do the whole lot at once. Then you fall over the other tripping point, of course, which is that of those 30 flats, 12 of them are leaseholders. Yeah. And they won't pay for their measures, so you have to subsidise them somehow, or they just won't let you do it. Yeah. And are you going to pepper pot the block or pepper pot, pepper pot the terrace? It's very difficult. And, you know, and actually having more right to buy in the, in the housing association sector, as we heard from the Prime Minister yesterday, makes that yeah. worse, not better. It's just so interesting, isn't it's, it? It's really, it's, it's yeah. a question of, you know, we need, 
obviously much more detailed information to be gathered and stored on uh, the nature of the existing stock, on the tenure of occupancy, on what works have been done to the stock and so on. And and then we need this kind of pragmatic uh, yes. uh, relativist approach to, 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 to thinking about, you know, what kinds of measures are likely to be doable in which kinds of buildings and in which time frame rather than just the the usual it it's just one of these areas the complexity of it is such that it that that this idea of of a minister just issuing a diktat and chucking money at a problem um, and 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 setting a tight time frame for it just doesn't work no, there's no need to come. I just wonder, has anyone got a database for that? Or indeed a standard, Jeff? Do we know of any organisation that may have both of those tools? I don't know. Well, I, don't I, think, know. I think a lot of housing organisations have got really quite good information about their stocks. You know, and it, it, they're susceptible to that if you don't, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it syndrome. But, you know, working with Savills, who do stock assessment and valuation work for 90% of the housing organisations in the UK, I can see that there is quite a lot of information, but what we're doing is just not very well, well melded in, you know. Uh, you might not be aware of it, Peter, but we're working on a solution for that, for uh, an aggregated database for low energy building information, materials, strategies, locations. Uh, we are in the midst of getting the first iteration, which won't be the aggregator. Uh, so that's coming through, just for the shameless plug, the AECB, one yeah. of Duncan's many hats, who yes. we're working with to upgrade. And this is a project that Alex and I, from Everything is User Experience, are running. So anyone needs any user experience strategy, uh, website strategy, messaging strategy, give us shameless. a shout. Shameless. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is why we're doing the LEBD. We're trying to stimulate everything. But right. And but right, because this is the, yeah. it's a platform. You're trying to knowledge share. You're trying to build a, a database that is ultimately so useful for so many people. So I say, you know, share. Yeah. What you need is a common data standard. I don't really yeah. mind if they've all got their own databases, provided they all talk to each other and they measure things the same way. Uh, and that's what I've been trying to do with clients I work with, get everybody to do it the same way. Yeah. yeah the, sure. the other lesson I think that comes out of LADS and SHDF is, Procurement managers, well, you know about procurement managers, direct procurement directors, Duncan. You know, they're, they're always who we trip over. They always want to do everything, package the whole lot up, give it to a design and build contractor off their framework. And we've been trying to say to them, well, actually, you want the rhetoric coordinator on your side of the contract fence, contractual fence because he's looking after your interests. Now we're beginning to think we want the rhetoric designer on the client side of the fence as well. And the trouble is that those procurement processes, which some of which are related to European regulations that may or may not any longer apply, but some of which aren't, have just become embedded practice. So getting a local authority or a housing association to take responsibility for commissioning the designer and have liability for the design is almost impossible. And yeah. yet we know that as soon as the rhetoric coordinator and the rhetoric designer work for the contractor, there's all sorts of conflicts of interest and the quality of the whole project gets compromised. So we, I think we've got to break that one. And it's been one of my objectives for the last six months to find a way of sorting out procurement directors and getting them on our side. Well, that's a really interesting point because, um, you know, the Renfisher contract, which I think is fantastic, which has now been awarded um, as of last week or the week before. I, I, and we worked on that together, Peter, about yeah. how we designed something that was 
that was um, non-standard and that was non-DMB and the risks associated with that, how do we replicate that type of contract? And also, how do we look at standards which are practically achievable, like, like the you know, shameless plug, again, the ECB's retrofit standard? I, I think Colin Taylor from Scotland Excel listens to this podcast, and I think that's where we have to engage with the, the, the type of material that, that was in the Renfrewshire standard with people like Scape Group and people like, because I think what you can achieve really quickly if you got some really big landlords who adopted that that process, you would start to see how that then becomes standard, you know, filters down as a standard, whether it's on frameworks or not for, for the rest of the, uh, the the industry. So I, th- I think I could not agree more. I think that's yeah. really critical. Well, one, of, one of the things we're doing at, at Savills actually is I've been mapping for them the potential contract structures for doing large-scale retrofit with, you know, design and bill at one end and, the, the client taking lots of control at the other end and, and a couple in between. And being Savills, their lawyers are Charles and Hamlins. So they can just go off and get the you know the, the UK's best legal advice if they need to. So we're going to take these things to Charles and Hamlins with a sort of advantages and disadvantages list and come back with some advice from them. And I'm hoping that we can get these procurement directors in a room and sort of browbeat them a bit and say, look, good legal advice says this, good risk management advice says this, and that we can start to push things. Because if we, you know, we can do it technically as well as we like, but if we get the wrong delivery structure, it's not going to work. Do you think there's any scope, Peter, for for Savills sharing any of the insights gained from this? I think so, yes, in the end. I mean, I'm working for them for the whole of this year uh, on, and essentially my brief is to make large-scale retrofit lean and mean because like almost everybody else in shtf wave one and the demonstrator and in lads they found it really bumpy and difficult and lots of responding to problems as they arise has been going on and they don't want to be there they want to have a system of doing it that's really well organized from top to bottom so my job is to help them design that system and obviously it's a bit of a commercial edge for them but i don't think they're particularly protective about it i think they want to they'd they'd rather be recognised as the people who know how to do it because that's what brings work in. So I yeah, think it's potentially okay. We need it, isn't it? The the collaborative approach thing that there's so much there's so much work to be done. There's so much room at the table. But yeah, actually, it's not like there's a shortage of work. <laughs> no, and if you have got a, a something that is again coming back to the, coming back to people in their homes, if this is going to be for the benefit of them and the standard of the work and all of those things, then you know, it's it's morally also the right thing to do, not to get so high horsey on the Friday, but like it is the way people are going, I suppose, as well, just generally in the industry. I mean, there's huge amounts of collaboration going on at the minute and it just seems to be growing and growing. So you would hope that that was also their stance. Yeah. Peter, I know you guys get away. We could we could talk, you know, for another hour and, and we'd love to get you back. I think it'd be great if we could get you back on. But I mean, I think, uh, uh, th- thanks for coming on. But um I think, as, I think that there are reasons to be optimistic. I think there's lots of reasons in the past why we've been. Isn't that Ed Miliband's line, like reasons to be cheerful? That's his podcast, right? Didn't he? <laughs> didn't, didn't he? Didn't he have that big obelisk, stone obelisk, with all the the the, <laughs> the policy stone. objectives, yeah. which just looked like a gravestone? Yeah. Just, so, <laughs> I think he regrets so, that himself. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. But um, no, I, I, I do. I, I think that. Um, 
I think positive, incredibly positive force within. The, I, I think my concern is about is, is what Peter has said is it's about the alignment of the contractor and the coordinator. I think we have to make uh, and people like us have been making that argument about the objectivity about professionals within the retrofit industry and, and how design and uh, design have to sit with the client, has to sit away from the contractor, and the placing of those works has to sit again independently, but 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 but, but by the um, you know. Controlled by the by the client rather than the contractor. The contractor really just carries out that that role. I think the Renfrewshire contracts are really great example of how that should be done. I mean, I think we're making progress. In the last amendment to pass twenty thirty five, we Sarah Price and I kind of got together and we managed to win an amendment, which was to say that there was a recommendation, not a requirement, but a rec that the retrofit coordinator should be independent of the installers and contractors. My ambition in this year's update is to change that recommendation into a requirement. Uh, and so what I've learned is you have to do these political things bit by bit. And, and I think we may get there this time because we're also moving in, in the shrinking of the steering group from 55 to 15. We're losing a lot of the installers and contractors and replacing them with more professionals. So I think yeah. the case will be better heard. I, th I think as a Star Wars fan, if we could clone, and I know if you've seen Star Wars, Peter, but as a Star Wars fan, if we could clone Lisa Pasquale as a retrofit coordinator, we could have an army <laughs> of Lisa Pasquales. I think we'd be okay. A couple of thousand Lisas, and we would be all. <laughs> I think Lisa might have something to say about that. <laughs> you put the fear of God into the industry if you gave Lisa that role. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> but I no think, in, in all seriousness, I think what you have in somebody like Lisa, and it's, a, a, you know, I am being. You know, flippant, but there is a point that you need somebody with that technical experience, with that no-nonsense grip on the practicalities, and who is who is quite happy to stand up to the contractor and know her ground. I think the point I am making is that, that it's that robustness that we need to challenge um, as as the break between the designer and the contractor on site to make sure that things have been delivered. You know, the, the, as a, as an old contract manager, the, the the words you know equal and approved just you know send a chill down my spine because what it basically means is a contractor that looks to try and make more money out of a contract and say, well, let's let's use this. So, I've just been writing uh, a a spec this afternoon for heat pumps in retrofit, a generic spec, and I've been going through one the engineer gave me and crossing out or equal and approved almost <laughs> under every paragraph. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I've done, done that before, but but Peter, it's been a, a pleasure having you having you back on, and again, it'd yeah. be great to get you back in the future. I think your knowledge and insight has been fantastic. I'm taking a positive from this, and I think we we should. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. It's been it's been fun. I like yeah, these cool. chats. You know, yeah. ACB is a network of individuals, companies and organisations promoting sustainable building and we've been around since 1989 with the largest members based sustainable building organisation in the UK with over 1800 members. Our aim is to bring together tradespeople, architects, engineers, builders and anyone interested in low carbon retrofit to train and promote best practice. We want to bring about lasting change and sustainable change within the construction industry and push towards our net zero targets. To that end, we've developed our AECB Retrofit and New Build Standards, 
We have a range of membership packages from student level to corporate, and we offer a number of training courses that are aimed at those involved in domestic retrofit. To add to all this, we're the UK's reseller of Passive House Planning Package, PHPP. We also sell PH Ribbon, which is a tool that allows designers to assess the embodied carbon of materials that they're using within their construction projects. So if you're interested in any of this, please get in touch or head over to the AACB.net. Thank you.